All right, we are back. It dismays this correspondent to realize that elections turn on that 5% of the voters that just don't know what to think. So they watch a debate and they depend on, you know, how warm and fuzzy they feel about a guy and his body language and, well, you know, intangibles to make their decision. As we talked about on last week's program, it appeared that in the first debate, uh, the president, by all accounts, didn't impress anybody with how detached he seemed. So on Tuesday night, he came back out loaded for bear. As we watched it, Mr. Millen and I, again, turned the sound off just to watch the body language and, and how that was being communicated, because I think that's important as the words that are being said, regrettably. And uh, the consensus is that Obama did very well, and Mitt Romney looked sort of angry and out of sorts and frustrated, and kind of like the Mitt Romney we were used to before the first debate. We'll have to see how this translates into polling and how the polling translates into swing state uh, direction in the Electoral College and what that's going to mean for November. We kind of suspect that, uh, for better or worse, it's it's going to take a turn south for Governor Romney and north for President Obama. But people's perceptions are funny things. You never know how that's going to go. But uh, um, we'll check in again next week and you know try and assess that. Let's, at this point... Uh, uh, hit a couple of science items that uh, that we find just exciting as hell. It seems pretty clear as the data comes in from astronomers around the world that planets orbiting stars that are in star systems, in other words, not one solitary star like our sun, but multiple systems like Alpha Centauri. Well, it's becoming clear that, uh, that, that a lot of these systems have planets. There was some debate uh, over the years as to whether this was going to work out from the celestial mechanics as we understand it, but the, the jury's in on this, and yes, star systems with two, three, maybe even six stars potentially can have planets around them. In fact, it was announced this week that a planet about 5,000 light years away, named PH1 after the Planet Hunters site, which is a bunch of amateurs taking a look at data from the Kepler spacecraft, has found a gas giant a little bit bigger than Neptune, which is out there happily orbiting in a star system of four stars. This really ups the probability that, uh, you know, that there are lots more planets out there than we envisioned, because most stars out there in the galaxies uh, are in multiple systems. The solitary star is the exception. If we can now figure that there are planets orbiting these systems, well, the number of potential planets out there has just gone up dramatically. Now, in this case, we want to give an attaboy to two U.S. volunteers who are using the planethunters.org website. This is Kian Jeck of San Francisco and Robert Gagliano of Cottonwood, Arizona. They looked at the data and spotted some faint dips in light caused by this planet passing in front of one of its parent stars. A team of professional astronomers that's then stepped in and confirmed their discovery using the Keck telescope on Mauna Kea. Now, what's even more interesting is a story that came out on Tuesday, which is much more in the neighborhood. We said a few months back that uh, our, our pal Bruce Betts, the Planetary Society, had written a piece about how they were going to take a closer look at our nearest neighbors in space, the Alpha Centauri system, which consists of Alpha Centauri A, almost a dead ringer for our sun, Alpha Centauri B, a star that's perhaps a little more orange, a little dimmer, a little less energy, and a, a red dwarf, which orbits a tenth of a light year away, as best scientists can determine. 
At any rate, there's been a lot of speculation on whether this very closest star system to us might have planets, and the evidence now appears to be in, and by God, Alpha Centauri B has one. Well, at least that's what the preliminary data suggests. The Kepler Space Telescope is very definitely not looking in the direction of Alpha Centauri, so other astronomers have to uh, get involved in this. And by doing careful measurements in the star, they have detected a wobble which takes place every three days, which is presumably means that a planet is orbiting the star every three days, which if you do the math, which is very easy to do with uh, high school physics, it turns out that when you do the math on this, that uh, this, this planet orbiting Alpha Centauri b is really close and really hot. Mercury orbits our sun in 88 days. If this thing's going around Alpha Centauri b in three days, well, it's got to be something like three million miles away from the surface. If you're keeping score, Mercury's 10 times further, something like 36 million miles. So there ain't going to be no people on this planet. But the exciting thought is that if we found one and we studied the data more closely, we might find others. Others that are a little bit further out, perhaps in the habitable zone. Pretty cool stuff. We're going to follow this, uh, this item, hopefully with some friends of ours at the Planetary Society, which does focus on our local neighborhood, meaning the planets orbiting the sun, but I'm sure they're going to find this one to be, well, it's, it's the next step out there. We've now found planets at the next closest star system. Of course, if mankind ever does decide to go out and take a look at this planet, it's going to take a while to get there. Just to give you some idea of the problem, Voyager 1, which is the furthest out object ever sent out by man, was sped out past Jupiter and Saturn starting in 1977. It's still less than a light day away. And of course, you'd need 365 light days to make one light year. Alpha Centauri is 4.3 light years away. You can see we have our work cut out for us. And uh, speaking of our sun, How's that for a segue? There's some evidence uh, accumulating here that the sun may be about to enter another hibernation phase like it did back in the 1600s. As we talked about in our discussion with astronomer Bob Berman on this show last year, between 1645 and 1715, sunspots pretty much disappeared from the sun and it got just a hair cooler, which has certainly been linked to historically to a little ice age which happened in Europe. For example, there are Dutch paintings from that period showing people ice skating out on canals that, that never freeze now. The sun's been doing some funny stuff. Now, last year there were, there were very few sunspots and the year before that, and um, judging by what the sun's doing now with its spots and increasing activity, which should be reaching a peak right about now, well, the, things are just not quite right. This would be a very... Welcome time for the sun to cool off a hair with all of our issues of global warming. So yeah, if there's a chance that uh, for um, 70 years the sun could uh, pump out less energy, well, by God, this would be the time to do it. All right, here's a couple of uh, bizarre items from the world of biology. You may have noticed, as, as we have, that, uh, that neuroscientists and Psychologists and psychiatrists keep citing all these studies done with what are, what are called functional magnetic resonant imaging, fMRI scans, which tell you that, well, this area of the brain seems to light up when people are doing this. 
or that area of the brain seems to light up when people are thinking about that. And from this, these neuroscientists are coming to all kinds of conclusions about how our brain works. Well, hold the phone. Let me quote from the uh, feedback section of New Scientist magazine from last month. Noted the magazine, feedback's favorite prize, the Ig Nobels, were handed out on the 20th of September in a packed ceremony at Harvard University. Feedback is proud to say that we spotted one Ig Nobel winner in advance. The Neuroscience Prize honors the discovery that sophisticated functional magnetic resonant imaging, fMRIs, can record mental activity in a dead salmon. Notes the magazine, Craig Bennett, now at the University of California at Santa Barbara, was performing test runs for fMRI scans in a study of how adolescents react to photographs of people displaying emotions. To prevent damage to the machine, something must be inside during a scan. So Bennett stopped off on his way to work and brought a whole salmon. To ensure a proper control, he showed the fish the same photos as the adolescents. Later, he wondered what would happen if he ran the data through his analysis system that searched for evidence of brain activity. The scan showed, quote, active Volox clusters in the salmon's brain and spinal column, unquote. It was a statistical quirk, apparently, but a significant one. Bennett and his advisor, George Wolford, had been worrying that poor statistical analysis could produce false positives, and their data analysis software had provided a perfect example. They reported their results in the Journal of Serendipitous and Unexpected Results, describing them as an argument for multiple comparisons correction. Bennett is reportedly pumped to receive the Ig Nobel, which he shares with Wolford and co-authors Abigail Baird and Michael Miller. Anyway, think of this. Next time you hear about an fMRI study that talks about people's reactions to certain photographs, or for that matter, dead salmon, as the case may be. I think we reported last year on this very strange cephalopod found deep in the oceans. Of course, cephalopod refers to squid and octopi among the mollusks. Uh, It was called the vampire squid. You probably saw pictures of this on the internet. It's a very creepy-looking creature which induced scientists to name it Vampiroteuthis infernalis, which translates literally as the vampire squid from hell. Now, like uh, spiders, which we mentioned earlier in the program, uh, squid and cuttlefish are predators by definition. You know, snakes too, now that I think about it. Although, yes, someone finally found a spider last year that apparently doesn't eat live creatures, but instead relies upon uh, its consumption of flowers. Well, I can't think of any exceptions to the fact that snakes eat live creatures. Apparently the vampire squid is running against the tide when it comes to other squid. This particular squid apparently has a pair of thin retractable filaments, which it spins out like fishing line. Scientists have been studying this animal and concluded that what it is doing is, well, it's capturing bits of drifting feces which it then sort of captures on the mucus on these filaments and reels it back in for a nice hearty meal. Now, apparently when you're living down deep in the ocean, there's not a lot of oxygen. This gives you an advantage. You don't have to expend a lot of energy to try and catch something and eat it. On the other hand, when biologists were asked about this particular type of squid and whether they thought it would be fit for human consumption, (laughs) the researcher asked, said, I wouldn't eat one. And you know what? 
I wouldn't either. Mr. McMillan? You know, we probably shouldn't do this, but this so reminds us of an exchange that took place in Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction that we have to go with this one. Want some bacon? No, man, I don't eat pork. Are you Jewish? No, I ain't Jewish. I just don't dig on swine, that's all. Why not? Pigs are filthy animals. I don't eat filthy animals. Yeah, but bacon tastes good. Pork chops taste good. Hey, sewer rat may taste like pumpkin pie, but I'd never know because I wouldn't eat the filthy mother. Pigs sleep and root and sh. That's a filthy animal. I ain't eat nothing. Ain't got sense enough to disregard its own feces. How about a dog? Dog eats his own feces. I don't eat dog either. Yeah, but do you consider a dog to be a filthy animal? I wouldn't go so far as to call a dog filthy, but they're definitely dirty. But dogs got personality. Personality goes a long way. Uh, so by that rationale, if a pig had a better personality, he'd cease to be a filthy animal. Is that true? Well, we have to be talking about one charming pig. I mean, he have to be ten times more charming than that arm on Green Acres, you know what I'm saying? Yes, we have to admit that that's, that still makes us laugh. All right, here's an item from the, the Law of Unintended Consequences. Cities across uh, California and across the nation are having trouble having ends meet. I think in California this is largely due to the fact that we've been running a giant real estate Ponzi scheme for over a century now where we just expect prices to go up forever, and when they stopped, oops. And yes, on next week's program we're going to talk about uh, one of our favorites among the local electoral issues, Measure T on the Sacramento ballot to get rid of the claw, which has been picking up leaves year-round for people that, people like myself that like to live where there's lots of trees and lots of leaves. Which does remind us of the fact that the city council in, 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 in the fair city of uh, the state capital spent $700,000 to study uh, how to keep the kings, but they can't spend a million dollars to pick up leaves. But we will defer that discussion in favor of a look back at the Sacramento News and Review from last February, which raised a very curious question about uh, Sacramento's uh, uh, revenues, noting that with... Um, with the problems that we are now having with federal raids on cannabis dispensaries, uh, well, all the tax revenue which was coming from these burgeoning businesses is now down the toilet. Apparently back in 2011 when U.S. Attorney Benjamin Wagner, acting for the Federal Department of Justice, began uh, zeroing in on uh, Sacramento's medical pot clubs for closure, well, City of Sacramento took in $550,000 over the first five months of that year, collecting a 4% sales tax on medical cannabis from 39 dispensaries. So yeah, this is something people hadn't thought of. If we close down all these successful businesses, well, um, you lose all the tax revenues that were coming along with them. And why is Obama's Justice Department doing this? So we can carry swing states like Virginia, North Carolina, and Florida? Don't know, but it sure as hell does not appear to be a popular uh, issue here in California, which had been previously advised by the federal government that uh, they were not going to step in unless there were some flagrant abuses. That's not to say there may not have been a flagrant abuse here and there, but this crackdown such as it's going down is, uh, is, is just, just a bit of a travesty. I did a disclaimer, right? Now, in last week's program, we were talking about uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act and how Attorney Scott Johnson, we actually did not belabor this point, but uh, 
the attorney doing these 2,200 lawsuits where he shakes down businesses for several thousand dollars at a pop, well, he's now being sued by his employees for sexual harassment and apparently the fact that some of them are feeling guilty about the fact they're being sent into businesses under false pretenses to try and find a way to entrap them legally. Of course, we promised that we are going to talk about uh, this topic at greater length. And, and one thing that needs mention in regards to that is this item by Richard Chang from the Sacramento Bee, which note, notes that George Louie, a West Sacramento man who has sued hundreds of Northern California cities and businesses for failing to comply with the federal Americans with Disabilities Act, saw the city of Yuba City announce last week that it has agreed to pay Louie $15,000 to leave the city and its businesses alone for good. And, and you ask yourself, and of course you may ask yourself at this point, how can that be anything other than just a, a mafioso-style shakedown operation that, that's just a deal is cut over? How, how can you look at it any other way? According to the beat, Darren Gale, Yuba City's economic development manager, said he's agreed not to file ADA lawsuits in our city, period. There's no timetable. It's forever. Doesn't this kind of remind you of those 1930s gangster movies where they would come in and say, like, hey, it looks like your business needs protection. Oh, protection from what? And, of course, they start breaking windows and smashing chairs. But notes the B. The agreement, which Yuba City officials say is the first of its kind, has many business owners in the Sutter County town drawing a sigh of relief. Louis' lawsuits targeting local governments and small business owners have usually ended in out-of-court settlements in his favor, because the cases are expensive to fight. As we talked about this three weeks ago on our program with, um, with Long Island attorney Anthony Curdo, talked about how our dysfunctional legal system prevents justice by making cases uh, so long and drawn out that everybody fears going to court, everybody fears how much money they'll have to spend for uh, defense against trivial lawsuits. And while we didn't talk about ADA lawsuits on that program, this certainly provides an example of that doesn't it? A piece by Richard Chang notes that critics have called these suits frivolous, alleging they are motivated by financial gain. Gee, you think? Yuba City property manager Bill Marr, who had had two tenants sued by Louis, said the going rate is $4,000 a case to settle. These are extortion lawsuits. Adding that the violations against the tenants were minor. Marr said that they were having to do with a missing handicapped parking sign, which he said was stolen off the pole. Well, luckily for the rest of us, SB 1186, which we talked about in the show last week, co-authored by Senate President Pro Tem Daryl Steinberg and Senator Bob Dutton from Rancho Cucamonga, prohibits attorneys from writing so-called demand letters that ask for money in exchange for not filing suit. That bill also reduces the monetary damages that can be awarded for each violation, which is a, a, a darn good idea in our opinion. And we burned out the time for a whole other segment. All right, let, let's take a break again. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's talk about some miscellaneous stuff in our third segment, such as the 91-year-old Alabama mayor that stole her town blind. <laughs> Stay tuned for that one. Mm-hmm. 